All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for this place. We thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, for everything you've given us to enable us to believe. But you don't make us believe. You let us choose. Help us, Lord. Help us to choose well. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to pick up again today uh, where we've been going in the book of John. But if you'll recall the last few weeks, last Sabbath, we did a special focus uh, with Vista Ridge Academy. So, so we focused more on a subject associated with education and kids. But then the two weeks before that, we were technically in John chapter 5, but we didn't really keep moving through the passage because, because the reality that develops in, in John 5 required us to make sure we understood a couple of the points here. So I want to take you back to John chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. It says, So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So that's been the passage that we jumped off of for the last couple of weeks. The first time, we jumped off of it to reflect on why would those words of Jesus been so offensive to the people? And we went back and we took a look at some of the Old Testament passages. The, 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 great, uh, the great saying of, of Judaism, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Not many, one. And the revolution this was in the context of a polytheistic world that there was one God, and even the struggle that God had with them, even describing himself as the most high God, because it was too hard to convince them that there might not be other gods. And all of this process that led down to this faithfulness, to the concept of one God, and anyone who would go against that, that was blasphemy, they were to be stoned, they were to be thrown out of the community. But now, having been steeped in this tradition all these years and in this understanding, which in truth was a more limited understanding than they realized, when Jesus came and began to make these claims, it made them very upset. So we spent some time on that. And then we also took another week to reflect on the whole reality of Jesus himself and these claims that he's making. It all happened after the events at the pool where Jesus came to the pool and he healed the man and told him to take up uh, his mat that he was laying on and walk, but that was carrying on the Sabbath and, and that created all of this stress. And so that brings us back to this passage again, which I'll read again, verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So this is the charge. Now, we talk the context. Now I'm going to tell you what Jesus said back to them. 
And the way that John recorded Jesus' response. So the accusation is, you're, you're breaking the Sabbath and you're making yourself equal to God. So here's Jesus' answer. It begins in verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. So the beginning of Jesus' answer to them saying, you're making yourself equal to God, you're breaking Sabbath, his answer to them is to say, I am the one who has come to do what the Father wants done. What I am doing is what the Father wants done. So this is identity. You remember throughout this book of John, there's this, this wrestling with the concept of identity. Who is this Jesus? So Jesus is going down the road now to try to answer that question a little bit. And he says, in these two verses, he says, I'm the one who does what the Father wants done. We go on, verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now this is pretty loaded, what he's saying here. What he's saying is, I've been given the authority to raise people to life, and I've been given the authority to judge. These are bold claims. And they stand in the context of Jesus explaining who he is in relationship to the Father, and in essence, affirming their greatest concern that he is claiming to be equal with the Father. He says, yeah. That's how it is. The Father has sent me to do his will on earth. That means raise the dead. That means judgment. And here's the thing. You think you're honoring God by hating me, Jesus says. But the truth is, if you can't love me, you can't love the Father. So Jesus says, I've been given authority for judgment. But here's what's interesting. It's judgment that happens in an unusual way. Verse 24. Here are the terms of the judgment. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. So what are the terms of the judgment? Jesus says, I've been given authority over the judgment. So how does it work? Well, it turns out it's not just an arbitrary little game that Jesus plays. Because the judgment is based on this. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes in the one who sent me. So the one who hears Jesus, believes what he's saying, and believes in the one who sent him, has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over 
from death to life. So what's the term of the judgment? The terms of the judgment are, have you believed Jesus? It's very simple, isn't it? Have you believed Jesus? Jesus didn't come down here to try to sort through details and say, okay, you're mostly good, but nah, I don't know. No, the terms are simple. Have you believed Jesus? Verse 25. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. There's an amazing passage in, in the Desire of Ages that, that reflects on this subject of resurrection. And it's in the context of the resurrection of Lazarus. And when Jesus is standing there in that incredibly emotion-packed moment, and he speaks the words with great power, Lazarus, come forth. He said it in King James. I don't know if you knew that. That's, no, it, it just sounds very official that way. Anyway, Lazarus, come forth. That there was so much power in those words that had he not specified Lazarus, all the dead would have come because they're just waiting for the voice of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Those who can hear nothing else, those who know nothing else, can still hear the voice of Jesus. And there's such power in that voice that if he's not specific, every one of them are like, oh, did you call me? That's how powerful Jesus is. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. So key identities of Jesus here. He's the one that's come to do the Father's will. He's the one who has the right to judge. He's the one who can call the dead back to life. These are the claims. Verse 28. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live. Those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. Now this is an interesting passage. And this speaks to the whole issue of when does judgment take place? This is a very relevant point, and it's one that, uh, th- that we need to recognize and, and, and reflect on the reality here. Jesus is saying, a day is coming when all who are dead will hear the voice and rise for a day of judgment. And in that day of judgment, the righteous will, will well, let's read it here. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. So, so the point here is, when does judgment take place on an individual life? It has long been uh, the notion or, or the understanding in a lot of Christianity that the moment of judgment takes place when you die, because at that point you either go to heaven or you go to hell. But that actually stands in contrast to what Jesus is claiming here. Because Jesus is saying, a day is coming when the dead will hear the voice. All of them, not just the good, all of them will hear and will rise for a judgment. Verse 30, by myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, 
For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. This is also a very interesting phrase. Verse 30. The manner of the judgment is this. Jesus says, I judge only as I hear. So this judgment that Jesus is is in charge of is not arbitrary in the sense of whatever Jesus feels like, but rather it is based upon what Jesus hears. And if he hears from you or from anyone, confession and plea and faith. then you are among those who live. But if he does not hear those things, then you are among the other group. It comes down again to this same issue that's at play throughout this whole book, recognizing Jesus for who he is, believing in him, repentance, confession, and trust. That's what the judgment is based on. Have you believed In the one that God sent. So now this is the claim. And this is pretty bold claims that Jesus has made here. It's pretty bold stuff. He says, I do the Father's will. I raise the dead. And I'm in charge of the judgment. So how's he going to back that up? So he follows it up with witnesses. Verse 31. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, this is John the Baptist, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you might be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. So Jesus is saying, okay, what's my evidence for my claim?" Okay, first, John the Baptist. You remember him? He came along and he pointed me out as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus' first point, his witness to back up these claims he's just made is John the Baptist. He agreed with me. He said that I am this one. In fact, he said, this is the reason I came baptizing so that Jesus could be identified. So the first witness that Jesus really is all of these things is John the Baptist. But it's kind of interesting. What are you going to do with that? Verse 35, John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. It's kind of a condemning statement, isn't it? Because in the end, everybody kind of turned on John. Verse 36, I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works I am doing, testify that the Father sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. All right, so we have a couple things happening here. The first thing Jesus says is, okay, you want another evidence? If you look at what I'm doing, you will realize that I am who I say I am. The works I'm doing testify. Now, now this is a tricky point a little bit. Because the Jews would frequently come to Jesus and say, 
What miraculous sign will you do to prove who you are? And he wouldn't play that game. He wouldn't say, no, I'm not here to do magic tricks. He would say, look at what I'm doing and figure it out. Well, how were they supposed to figure it out? Well, we'll get to that in a second. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me, verse 37, you have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe in the one he sent. So this is, this is a tricky one. Okay, Jesus is saying the Father has testified about who I am. And there's some times, right, that we can remember from some of the stories of the gospel. Do you remember when Jesus is baptized and when he comes up out of the water? Heaven is open, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the Father's testimony. The problem was... You had to really be in tune with the Spirit or else the voice, they said, just sounded like thunder. There's other times when, when God will speak directly, but most of the people can't hear it. And this is what Jesus is saying here. The Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have, heard his you have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe in the one he has sent. So the key to being able to recognize the voice of God is to believe in the one he has sent. But you see how, how you still can find room to doubt in that? Because how can I believe in a voice I can't hear unless I believe? So, so the testimony of the Father is, is truly definitive, but it's also nearly impossible for us to hear. Verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Okay, maybe this is the, the most unsettling of them all. Because what it suggests is it's not enough to have this book. It's not even enough to read this book if the result of that doesn't lead you to a conviction that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. You can even be convinced that in this book is eternal life, but if it's not leading you to Jesus, it's not working. Even if you're diligently studying it, there are scholars who know a hundred times more about the book of John than I do. But they don't believe in Jesus. They've studied it, but it's not doing them any good. This was the crisis of the day. The Pharisees could quote massive stretches of the Bible. But yet all of that knowledge was not enabling them to recognize Jesus. So the sources of, of proof of who Jesus is, there's, there's plenty of them. There was John the Baptist. There's, uh, there's the works that Jesus is doing. There's the testimony of the Father. There's the testimony of Scripture. 
Yet you can still have all of those things. And if in your heart you're not willing to believe, they do you no good. Verse 41. I do not accept glory from human beings. But I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. But if someone comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This is a hard saying and we need to hear it carefully because we're prone to this. This is the reality about us that makes us so susceptible to conspiracy theories. You see, we just don't believe the story. There's gotta be something else. This is the whole Eve dynamic in the garden, right? Has has the Lord told you that you cannot eat of the trees of the garden? No, 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 no. We can eat of the trees of the garden. It's just this one we can't eat from. Because in the day we do it, we will die. Oh, you're not going to die. You see, he doesn't want you to eat from this tree because he knows if you do, you'll become like him. Really? Wow. So after all this time, hanging around with the one who created you, hanging around, being being in this garden that God has made, all it takes is one little voice to come along and say, no, 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 no. No, he's tricking you. Oh, we want to believe that, don't we? We grab on to the doubts, to the lies. That can't be true. That can't be right. And this is what Jesus is saying. But yet, ironically, at the same time, we doubt what God has said, we doubt who God is, and we turn around and we believe the craziest thing with no evidence at all. God gives us all this evidence to believe, but because we're, I don't know, we turn around and we believe The craziest stuff. So Jesus comes as the true Messiah, the true Son of God. He comes to Israel. He comes to his own. But they don't receive him because he doesn't do it the way they think he should. And then as the years go by, I don't know how much you know about the history of Jerusalem, but all kinds of different leaders will arise claiming to be Messiah, and people will flock after them because they're doing it the right way, except they're not doing it the right way. They're doing it in the way of man, not in the way of God. And Jerusalem itself will be destroyed in AD 70, and there'll be another revolt after the year 100. It was called the Bar Kokhba Revolt, a man who claimed to be Messiah, and they followed after him. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. He said, I have come in my Father's name, verse 43. You do not accept me, but if someone comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? When Jesus doesn't do it the way we think he should, we chase after something something that will align with our expectations. We're quick to doubt. We're slow to believe. 
Verse 45, but do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? So it's pretty remarkable what Jesus has laid out here in terms of evidence. He said, okay, here's the evidence that I am who I say I am. You have John the Baptist. You have the works I'm doing. You have God himself. You have scripture. Specifically, you have Moses. These are the witnesses to who I am. If you can't hear any of these, you'll never be able to believe in me. But these are my witnesses. Well, obviously, his answer didn't satisfy them. And while that's an interesting reality, there is a more important question. Do his answers satisfy you? Does Jesus' proof that he's given of who he is satisfy you? You see, this is the, this is the crisis that's playing out in this whole book. John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world... And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This really is the whole thing. This really is the whole context of the judgment. Have you believed in Jesus? The, the judgment that Jesus will make is based on what he hears you say, do you believe? It's very important. Because as he says in John 5, 24, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Is that not really kind of the whole thing of what we want and need? Right? To cross over from death to life. That on the day of judgment, we stand not in our failure, but in the grace that is ours. And what is it all based on? Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me. That's what it's based on. Verse 25. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Remember how the book of John ends? You have that, that story of Thomas 
We've talked about it a couple times now. We're going to keep coming back to it because it's the contrast in this whole challenge of belief. He says, unless, unless I can put my finger in the nail marks and my hand in his side, no way I'm going to believe this. So Jesus shows up says, go ahead, Thomas. Here we go. And he says, ah, you see and now you believe, but blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. He's talking about you. Because you weren't in the room that day, were you? The only way we know anything about that day at all is that someone wrote it down and it was passed to us. We have to receive it by faith. We have to receive it with the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But if we do receive it by faith and by conviction, the scripture tells us that by doing so, we pass from death to life. But it even takes some faith there, doesn't it? Because even the people who wrote these words are are not still with us. If, if, If John was still alive, I think we'd know, right? There's this one 2,000 year old guy I think he'd stick out. So what Jesus is talking about here is passing from death to life even though we may go through a period of death before we get to that eternal life. The promise is there. It's given by faith, but it isn't quite yet received. We have to believe it. We have to embrace it. And this really is the challenge in our day. It's a challenge in every generation, but but it is particularly a challenge in this day. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 says, Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. So I want to just stop right there, just for a second. And and I want you to think about yourself and also think about our day. There are the people in the world that say, if you could just do a big enough trick, I would believe, right? If you could just do a sign to prove that Jesus is who he says he is, then I'll believe, okay? That's the Jewish mentality that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians, and, and, and it's true enough in the context of Jesus. Even after Jesus would do amazing things, they would come to him and say, what sign will you give us to prove who you are? Jesus says, forget it. Just look at what I'm doing and figure it out. So Paul says, Jews demand signs. And then, and then Greeks look for wisdom. How many people do you know in our day who say they can't believe because it just doesn't make sense to them. They just can't believe that's how it is. I just can't believe that there's a God. I look out at all the trouble. How can there be a God? I look at how everything goes. I look at what science has taught us. I look at these theories of man. I look at this. I look at that. I need wisdom in order to believe in God. That's the Greek mindset. And I believe we still have both of those in our day. And we may very well have both of those in this room right now. I know both of those things war within me. 
Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So here's the deal. Not going to do a great work today to amaze you into believing. Not going to do some massive uh, treatise on philosophy and wisdom that's going to argue you into believing. I've only got one tool. Preaching Christ crucified in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's it. That's all I got. I'm here to tell you that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That he came to earth, that he was born, that he lived, that he overcame the devil, that he did good, that he inaugurated the kingdom of God, that he died for our sins, that he rose again, that he lives to make intercession for us, and that he's coming again. That's all. That's all I got. I can't prove it with a sign. I can't give you an airtight argument. But I can tell you that that's what this book is about. And if you believe, you have passed from death to life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, You have given us the opportunity to believe. But you've also given us the opportunity to disbelieve. Lord, send us your Holy Spirit and put resolve behind our weak and faltering faith that we might truly believe and live as your people. In Jesus' name, amen.